Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and sometimes people who just have fascinating stories. Today, our guest is three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Walt Bogdanich of the New York Times. He talks with us about today's role of investigative reporting in a politically polarized country. He also talks about his new book, When McKenzie Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. He explains how this powerful company's tentacles entangle almost all aspects of American life. Walt, the bulk of your career has been in investigative journalism, investigative reporting. Can you give me your perspective of how that craft has changed perhaps over the last two decades? I can do that because uh, being uh, in this profession as long as I have, um, I have seen the changes and participated in them. When I was breaking into the business, particularly in Cleveland, working undercover was, was a very popular thing to do. In other words, not explaining who you are or why you're in any particular situation. And that was even controversial back then, but it was done a lot. And over time, people came to realize that there was credibility uh, issues w when that happens. So um, since then, there's been a big effort to become more scientific, um, to be more document-driven, to be more responsible, to be more upfront about what you're doing. And, and that's in large part uh, to, because of organizations like investigative reporters and editors, to which I belong for like you know, 40, 50 years. Upgrading the profession of investigative reporting um, is its, its, its goal, and I think it's done that. And investigative reporting to a, a novice audience out there may sound redundant. Can, can you sort of differentiate between regular reporting and investigative reporting for a lay audience? Investigative reporting requires a lot more time and, and different skills. I mean, regular reporting, beat reporters, feature reporters, that requires significant skills too. It's just different. Um, investigative reporters share one common um, trait, and we call that a, a low threshold of indignation. In other words, and not a lot of people have that low threshold of indignation, which is a polite way of saying, you know, we get angry when we see things that aren't right. We get angry when we see people being harmed. 
And, and not everybody feels that way. Not everybody should feel that way necessarily. You have high blood pressure if you, if you live your life like that, <laughs> which I have, in fact. So, so that's, that's one of the differences. Now, you teach investigative reporting at, at the Columbia School of Journalism, Graduate School of Journalism. How do you mold these young people into having the low threshold that you talked about or a high degree of curiosity? Both, I think, are factors in investigative work. Can you create somebody that's not naturally given to those two factors? I think you can you can you know give them um, an opportunity to learn and to get better. I think there may be a ceiling though for those who aren't born with this sort of uh, low threshold of indignation that I've described. And let me expand on that a bit. You need that to be able to break through the barriers that are erected by the powerful people that you're trying to expose or the powerful institutions. Not everybody has that. And so, um, it, but it's an important uh, characteristic to be able to, to produce investigative reporting. You talked about the difference between the old days of sort of going undercover and, and the, the new days of being more transparent. Can, can you talk about the role of data and investigative reporting and data mining and big data and data manipulation, not in a bad sense, but the, the manipulation of data to arrive at answers. Well, that's part of the, the more uh, sophisticated form of investigative reporting, the more credible form of investigative reporting. We no longer just rely on, well, two or three people told us this. People hearing that or reading that may think, well, you know, they've cherry picked. With data, if you have access to it and you know how to work it and how to, how to use it to reach conclusions, much more credibility, much more believability. And that has really taken on a huge importance in virtually every major investigation that's done in, at least at the New York Times and, and, and to some degree even in television as well. This is, you've been in this position for a, a number of years. You, you certainly are a, a veteran investigative reporter. Have you had to learn new skills to uh, perfect your craft? Oh my, yes. <laughs> yes, I, I, in fact, I've, I've taught at the School of Journalism in Columbia for, I guess, maybe 14 years. Every so often, I think, you know, I need to sit in on these new investigative skill classes that everyone is taking and is required to take at Columbia because every day there's something new and people are learning much more about how to use this data, about where to find it, and, and, and you know how to use it in a responsible way. So yes, I'm always learning. The, the day I stop learning is the day I'll retire. And I hope that's not anytime soon. Uh, and I have a question, sort of the role of investigative reporting in 2022. Uh, we see newspapers disappearing. We see more news deserts around the country, especially in the heartland and in small and medium-sized uh, communities that that 
don't have investigative reporting available on on the local level. We've seen the amazing rise and explosion of of social media. Has has the social media climate and the a tendency for people to absorb news in sound bites change the need for investigative reporting or the appetite for it? In fact, it's increased the need for investigative reporting because sound bites, social media, they're not held to the same standards as you know responsible investigative reporting. I, I think it's very dangerous um, for a democracy to be reduced to sound bites, to be reduced to people's opinions on, on social media. And that's what they are often. And people tend to believe it. I think one of the great challenges of our time um, in a democracy that we need to maintain and nourish it, to continue the way of life that we live here in this country. I mean, we need more responsibility. We need, we need not to be listening to the rumors and, and other things that are on, 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 social media, very dangerous. And I think it's one of the reasons why people are, don't believe necessarily, oftentimes, what responsible news reporters are, are explaining and putting out there. Investigative reporting is, I think, by, by all standards, what we used to, in the old days, call hard news. Uh, today, especially in broadcast, we seem to have less and less hard news. We may have a kernel of hard news and then 15 minutes of analysis from so-called experts or pundits. Uh, how does that change the, the appetite that people may have for your product? Well, we, we need to change that attitude. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very dangerous. It's very cost-efficient in the minds of corporate execs who run these news operations because reporting costs money. Investigative reporting costs extra money, but it's a responsibility, responsibility that we have to democracy to spend that a reasonable amount because people need to know what their government's doing. They need to know what corporations are doing and corporations that affect their lives. And that's gonna cost money. And it's much, much easier to find people to sit in a chair, turn on the camera or the, or the radio uh, the, uh, the microphone and to spout opinions. And that's what I see increasingly on television. And there is some um, need to some degree for putting the facts in context, but you got to start with the facts. And sometimes we're not spending enough time, not spending enough money to gather those facts. In this climate of people disbelieving anything that is opposed to their uh, personal beliefs, uh, have you found it difficult to give factual reporting the kind of strength that it needs? Well, there's only so much we can do as investigative reporters, and, and it is uh, incredibly frustrating to, to hear um, when we report the facts that so many Americans no longer believe it. And I think like the New York Times where I work now, we're really making a major effort to try and understand why that's happening. We have to understand why that's happening because I do think, uh, you know, and I've not lived the, the 200 plus years of our democracy, but 
in my lifetime of 70 years, I've never seen uh, a, a worse situation uh, where people are not believing what news, pe news people report and, and questioning the basic foundations of democracy. And I think that's incredibly dangerous and I hate to see it. One last question on investigative reporting, and then I want to talk about your new book. But but it seems like you said investigative reporting costs money. Newspapers used to be full of money, uh, whether they were small town, medium town, uh, uh, across the country. That's no longer the case. So is investigative reporting going to be only centered in say the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. You know, and if that's true, is there a danger in that? Well, there is a danger in that. And, and I'm, I feel very good in telling you that, that in fact, um, there is great investigative reporting in the heartland in places that uh, are, we've called sort of the informational desert um, because there are a lot of nonprofits that are sprouting up all around. Um, that are funded, you know, well-funded to produce significant reporting. And that's, a, that's a, something that's developed in the last 10 years. And, and I've seen terrific investigative reporting coming out of those outlets that didn't exist before. So yes, I mourn the loss of, of more voices out there. And, and that, that does, that does um, you know, bode ill for, for our country, but there are efforts being made by responsible people who have money to kind of fill that void with important investigative reporting, important reporting in general. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream, and in every medium and by all means, it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to talk about your latest work, uh, When Mackenzie Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm, authored by you and your co-author, Michael Forsyth. First of all, uh, most people have never heard of McKinsey and Company. Can you give us a, a paragraph of what it is? It's a consultancy 
but that hardly describes what they're about. They're big, they're powerful, they're secretive, and there's no accountability. And they affect our lives in so many ways. I mean, in this country, overseas, they consult with autocrats, with, with government agencies all around the world, but mostly they advise corporations and they charge a huge sum of money. And I can understand how if you're advising, you know, uh, General Motors or, you know, a tech company, that that information should be confidential. But what's happened is McKinsey has moved into the realm of advising governments and advising agencies at the same time that they're advising the, the industries that they regulate. And that's a huge conflict of interest and a real problem. And I think we could see the results of that in the opioid crisis, which has affected this country in, in, uh, from coast to coast and is continuing to affect the country and hurt, hurt communities, tear communities apart. McKinsey was advising Purdue Pharma and other uh, uh, opioid makers. At the same time, they were advising the Food and Drug Administration, which is supposed to be making sure that those companies are behaving responsibly. And I think that conflict of interest is a real problem. Now, McKinsey will say that, well, it's not a conflict because we did not advise um, the FDA on any particular problem. But I think most reasonable people, uh, rational people, when they hear about this dual, these dual roles that McKinsey has, that's highly problematic and rather suspicious in my view, which is why we decided to look, dig deep into it and to reveal many of McKinsey's secrets. I, I think McKinsey may have more secrets than any company, any entity in the world, probably as many as the CIA, because their entire business foundation, business model is built on secrecy. They never disclose their clients. They never disclose what they tell them. And, and they're unregulated and unaccountable. Anytime you have a concentration of power like that, where there is no disclosure, where there's no accountability, that can be very dangerous. And I think we've seen the results of that. It, it, I mean, who would think that this, the truth is I didn't know what McKinsey was when I started, but I heard people talk about it and it piqued my curiosity and I started looking into it. And I'm glad I did. And I, I found things that uh, I had never been reported and we put in the book and, um, and people are reading it. This company started, if, if my history is correct, back in 1926. It's not a new company, but did it have this same philosophy from its inception? And, and at what point did it sort of explode in, in power? I think it exploded as people began to realize that there was uh, uh, value in consultants, not necessarily a good value in my view, but m corporations, more and more of them, began to realize that if they had to make unpopular decisions, that it's a lot easier to be able to push that off, the responsibility for that, um, onto consultants. So say I run Corporation ABC, and I decide that the quickest way to boost profits, to increase shareholder value, is not to develop new products or sell more to increase on the revenue side, but to cut expenses. And the way, easiest way, quickest way, is just to, to lay people off. 
And there may be no company in, in the world that has probably had a bigger role in, in laying people off than McKinsey. One, one of those companies was U.S. Steel, correct, in, in Gary, Indiana? Yes, where, where I worked and experienced. Uh, I mean, McKinsey wasn't there as far as I know when I was working there, but they came later. Um, they worked before I worked there. Well, I mean, I was there in the 70s. And, and, and at one point, you know, years before that, they accounted for 50% of McKinsey's uh, business. Then the, the steel mill fell into disrepair. Competition really uh, was decimating the U.S. steel industry. And to try and figure out a way out of that morass, um, U.S. Steel, among others, hired McKinsey. And McKinsey, one of their big recommendations was to cut costs. And according to the union people that I talked to, one of the ways they did that was to cut maintenance. And I can tell you this, I've worked in the steel mill and I know how dangerous it is. And when you cut maintenance too much, too quickly, without proper thought, people die. And, 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 and that's what happened. Not only the steel industry, let's talk a little bit before we get to the opioid uh, issue, but with cigarettes and the Surgeon General's uh, proclamation in the 60s that they were damaging to health and, and caused cancer. Uh, what role did McKinsey have with tobacco companies then and now? Well, for, for almost 60 years, they've been helping cigarette companies sell more cigarettes. Now, you know, maybe 60 years ago, that wasn't, you know, a controversial position, a controversial client. But over the years, it's become increasingly clear that cigarettes were, in fact, the most lethal consumer product in American history. And McKinsey knew this, and just as the, as the government knew this. But government didn't take action until very publicly until 1964, when the U.S. Surgeon General declared that the studies specifically link cigarette smoking to cancer. That was 1964. Until last year, McKinsey was still working with cigarette companies. And, you know, McKinsey doesn't hire dumb people. That's the one thing they do. They hire the smartest people they can find. They recruit the best and the brightest at the best Ivy League schools. These people are not stupid. They know what was happening and they continued to work for these companies year after year, long after it was widely known and widely accepted that cigarettes were addictive and lethal and that the cigarette companies were lying about it. The... Uh... McKinsey also had a role in introducing menthol to cigarettes, correct? And, and what, what reaction did that have? Well, I don't know that that's what happened. They may have. Um, what I do know is that, is that they did advise the company that made the most popular menthol cigarette. Um, I mean, they, they, they helped that company, Newports, which is one of the best-selling cigarettes next to... Uh, to Marlboro, and it became very popular in black communities, and they targeted black communities. Black smokers preferred menthol. It, the problem with menthol, with black smokers or white smokers or whatever, is that it's a gateway smoke for, for young people. Anyone who's 
you know, tried to smoke a cigarette for the first time knows it's an unpleasant experience. It's harsh. Eventually you keep smoking, you get addicted, and then you can't live without it. But menthol eases the way into it because it masks the harsh taste. And McKinsey worked for, you know, a company that, that, that sold more uh, menthol cigarettes than anybody. The McKinsey, you know, has sort of skated, uh, my word, uh, without a lot of litigation. Um, most recently, I, I understand they had a $600, or $600 million settlement uh, in the opio- opioid matter, but didn't admit any kind of wrongdoing. Talk about how they've avoided controversy, avoided lawsuits, avoided catastrophe. Well, that comes down to the secrecy. And, and, and that's why they value it um, so much and why they, they burn that into the brains of every new consultant that comes in there. Um, their view is they won't take credit for when companies do well, and they won't take blame when they don't. And, it's, and they've existed in the shadows. And one of the reasons that they have is because of how journalists, whose responsibility it is to look at these powerful institutions like McKinsey, um, have such, a, such difficulty in piercing the corporate veil because they have everybody sign non-disclosure agreements. And, 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 and one of the problems also there is that when they work for the government, you know, the government has an, is responsible for accounting for how it spends taxpayer money. But when they hire private consultants, the private consultants say, well, you know, we're not part of the government. We work for the government, but, you know, we're, we're not necessarily obligated to tell you what we're doing on behalf of taxpayers. And they've managed to get away with it for years. And, and, and let me comment on the $600 million that they paid um, uh, to settle the investigations into the opioid crisis. They always end a statement like that just like they did in South Africa, where they had to pay back $100 million for their role in some very questionable corrupt contracts um, that involved um, their business partners. Um, They always say, we did not engage in any wrongdoing. In other words, you know, we'll pay money, but don't look at us. We're not gonna say we did anything wrong. And I don't understand how a company can pay $600 million and say they did nothing wrong. It doesn't make sense. And had no role in the, in the ongoing crisis that, that we're seeing, especially in, in our region, uh, in, in this area. Uh, well, well, to be fair to McKinsey, you know, they, they, they were there um, with Purdue Pharma when they kicked off the, the opioid right. crisis. Since then, it's taken on a life of its own and you know, other other opioids have entered the market and dominated it. And so they can't be blamed for what's happening right now, but they can be blamed for fanning the flames of that epidemic. Talk about their role, if you would, Walt, in, in politics. Um, they've skated, again, my word, to through Congress. Nobody's really done a big investigation, I understand, uh, California Congresswoman Katie Porter is is looking into some of their things now. Do they own politicians? Uh, 
How does that work? They work for government. They work for the CIA. They work for the FBI. They work for the Pentagon. They work for Health and Human Services. They work for every major federal agency. And elected officials understand that. And, you know, I don't understand why they haven't decided that this is an important, powerful institution and we need to ask questions. And they've begun to do that primarily because of the opioid crisis. And people like Katie Porter, people like, you know, uh, uh, other committee heads have started to look at them. I suspect that they're going to be um, under more scrutiny. In fairness to McKinsey, and I always have been fair to McKinsey, um, because of our reporting in the New York Times that preceded the book, um, they made changes. They said, we're going to be more careful about how we select clients and we're going to monitor those relationships better. Um, shall we believe them? I don't know. I mean, time will tell. Based on their previous uh, record, I think it requires scrutiny and perhaps some skepticism. But, how, but I'll give them that. How can you monitor that? <laughs> well, you can see if there are any other, you know, wildfires that are breaking out um, yeah. where they, they have been involved. I mean, I don't know how you, you monitor it kind of the way I have done it. And government should be monitoring this, you know, finding out, de demanding accountability. That's the key in our society, demand accountability. And I think government has to take the lead and journalists have to follow some of the, the work that we've done uh, because they're powerful and because they affect our lives in so many ways. Talk about that a, a, a bit. I think somebody hearing us talk may think, well, this is a Washington thing. This is big corporation thing. This doesn't impact us in small town heartland America. Uh, besides the cigarettes and the opioids, could you talk about how it does impact people in big cities to small towns? One of the biggest problems we have in America today is inequality. It's tearing this country apart. It's leading people to, to believe that the system is rigged against them, it, leading them to believe that you can't believe what journalists tell them, what the government tells them. I think that all kind of flows from this inequality. And McKinsey's had an important role in creating that in terms of laying people off, in terms of recommending aggressively recommending that corporations outsource their work to other countries, um, resulting in, in you know, significant harm to all those people who lost their jobs. Um, back in 1950, I'll give you an example of how this, one of the ways that this developed. McKinsey was, was, did a study at the request of General Motors to determine whether workers were, income of workers was catching up to executives in in major corporations. And every year they did a study. And, and, and the conclusion was that, yes, they're catching up. And as a result, in part, uh, McKinsey advised corporations, corporate executives, how they can increase their income. And believe me, it has increased. Back when this was done, um, back in the you know, mid last century, uh, I think that the, the ratio was something like 30 to one. Executives made 30 times what the worker does. Now it's like 350 to one. Um, wow. It's outrageous. Um, 
it's, it's all designed to help the corporate executives at the expense not only of the workers, but of the communities, because you know, they, they, they emphasize shareholder value over production, over do you, do you make things? Are, you know, are you just worried about Wall Street satisfying them? Or are you worried about making products and things that people can use that will employ people? And I think that's where they're very vulnerable. Your book, When McKinsey Comes to Town, available at all bookstores, all places where people purchase books, correct? Correct. Okay. Wanted to make sure that people know that it's out and it's available if you wish to follow up and read more uh, about this topic. Before we end, you are continuing to do stories if anybody looks at, at your archive uh, at the New York Times, you're continuing to do stories about McKinsey. Uh, you did a couple in, in September, uh, how they got into the business of addiction and, and they're charged in South Africa in a corruption case. When does your work end on a topic such as this? Or do you see this as an ongoing career uh, mission? No, I don't see it as ongoing career mission. I mean, I, I will respond to that question the same way I would on you know anything. I mean, it depends on what I see and what I what what I'm told. If I continue to get information that will reveal uh, new stories that I haven't told already, I will follow up on them. As will my partner Michael Forsyth, who's a a tremendous reporter, blessed to have worked with him. But I mean. It's a big world. We've got a lot of problems out there. Democracy is under fire. I mean, I'm going to report on, on the issues that I think most are most impactful for Americans that affect our lives. So if it's McKinsey, I'll look at them. If it's something else, I'll look at that. Um, that's my responsibility to make sure that I am listening out there and talking to enough people to recognize where the problems are problems that need to be investigated. Well, we appreciate you being our eyes and ears out there to bring some of these things to, to our attention. And best of luck with the book. Uh, a tremendous topic and, and something that people don't know about and they need to understand. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today's guest was Walt Bogdanich three-time Pulitzer Prize winner who talked about investigative reporting and his latest book, When McKenzie Comes to Town. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. And Spectrum also is available through the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.